Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the AltMed podcast. Great to have you with us once again. And if you are enjoying this, please hit subscribe wherever you're getting your podcast feed. Um, we really appreciate all the support. As always, I'm here today with my co-host, Mitch Kurtz. Hello. And, <laughs> hey, Mitch. And it Hello. is our great collective pleasure to welcome to our podcast today, Claire Barker from Entura. Welcome, Claire. Hello. Really pleased to be here tonight. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure to have you here. But uh, there's a great rap that you get in the community. Everybody knows your name and you're a big... Uh, big player in the uh, Australian cannabis space. So we're very excited to chat with you tonight. Oh, thank you. And it's, a, it's an amazing it kind of that, that kind of fits a little bit odd with me because I still think I'm a baby in the cannabis world because I've really only been in it since 2017, but um, it is something I'm ma massively passionate about and have jumped two feet in um, no holes barred. So, and I have spent a lot of time trying to educate myself and, about all aspects of what we do here in Australia. Well, 2017, Fantastic. I think, has you as a, a bit of a pioneer in the space, really. We've uh, been legal since mid-2016, thereabouts. So um, yeah. one of the true you know, early pioneers in the space. Can you maybe, before we dive in, I know Mitch and I have got a bunch of questions for you, but can you take yeah. us through your background, how you got into this space and all your time at CSL as a quality control? Anyway, I won't ruin the yeah. story, but, but talk us through yeah. it. Yeah, look, so um, it's a bit of an interesting story and I do think I'm probably unique. My background is a little bit unique for someone who's running a medicinal cannabis company because I do come out of um, pharmaceutical, biopharmaceutical and human injectables. So there's not a lot of people who have that background and from the quality front. But I, um, I left uni, um, I mean, so I, I did a science degree at uni and didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, but explored that and ended up at CSL and quite literally on a three-month contract washing bottles for their influenza manufacturing um, process. I left there nearly 20 years later on their um, uh, executive, like the Australian executive team um, on global committees and um, working very much on, had spent time in the commercialization of their influenza vaccine. So an amazing place to um, project a career from. Goodness me, did you have any, um any emergency pandemic vaccine preparations to uh, to get involved with during your time or absolutely we did and that's a really amazing thing for me that's been the surreal part of this one of the big parts of actually working through csl and actually getting government the government contracts to csl is you always have to have a pandemic plan so i've spent many uh, years many hours working through pandemic plans worked through the swine flu rollout worked with the u.s government um, and we had pandemic stockpiles for the US government, pandemic stockpiles for the Australian government, all the plans of which staff would be able to turn up to work and which ones couldn't, what hotlines we would run, how it would do. And I am one of the things that's been amazing to me that I've experienced a, um, a pandemic and I'm not, and A, it wasn't influenza, and B, that I'm not got anything to do with it, apart from being on the, being in the community. Well, you probably well, then, You did uh, have some of those those coveted SOPs that the cannabis industry loves so much these days, though. <laughs> yeah, oh, I was a queen of SOPs. You are correct. <laughs> queen of SOPs, queen of, uh, you know, dealing with government affairs and, and yeah. everything like that. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, I think I saw... Yeah, look, and I think that, that's, been, that's been amazing. because And then, I look, I actually, 
um, I then took, I took a, either a career break, a first, my first retirement, but I, I took two years off work. Oh, so I, the dream. I it was, it was, it was, I had, look, it was a really, honestly, the, the role that I had at CSL was, um, was really challenging, fantastic, but it did, it was actually kind of very, very draining. The opportunity came where they split their businesses and it meant that it was a really good time for me to part ways and we part ways very well. I've got a fond place in my heart for CSL mm-hmm. and, um, and I, at that point in time, really wanted to work out what I wanted to be when I grew up um, and decided that I would take some time off to work that out. And I thought I'd take 12 months off, but it turned into be two years and one week. Maybe we need to take some time off, Andrew, to figure out what we want to be when we grow up. I want to be a podcast host. All right, keep working you're at it, you'll living, get there. You're living your dream. <laughs> Maybe one day. <laughs> oh, dear. Yeah, and then, and so after the two years where I, and I actually really thought I would um, branch out and kind of move away from that kind of sector altogether. But an opportunity came up to work um, with Professor Ian Brighthope at his company, which was Nutrition Care. So that Nutrition Care was his business, which he generated, which was, um, manufacturing vitamins, minerals, probiotics. Um, and that was for his own brand as well as contract manufacturing. So it was an amazing opportunity to actually run a business end to end. And I knew even though my background at CSL was quality on paper because of the experience and the opportunity that was afforded to me, I considered myself to be a business manager. And so Ian um, took me on and I actually managed to manage his business for him, which was an absolute blast, bringing in the sales and marketing side all the way from supply um, of materials for manufacturing. And with, when I was with Ian, one of the things is that to, in order for that business to grow, he needed to take on um, extra partners, et cetera. So went through to a business sale with him. And that, that, that happened in like September 2016, right exactly at the time that medicinal cannabis was legalising here in Australia. So I did about a 12-month period of um, co-general managing to hand over that business to someone from the parent company and stepped into a business development role um, because Ian has always been like his plant-based medicine. That's the reason why he started that company. Mm. He's got some really strong history with this. Um, and he had um, he'd even worked and he tells about this with, with Sir William Keyes and actually helped him access some medicinal cannabis for his end of life and has strong ties with um, John Eastling, Amazon John, um, who'd got him very excited about medicinal cannabis or cannabis. And um, so I went to a BD role to see how, if any way, nutrition care could step into um, the medicinal cannabis world. And through that full analysis, um, there's multiple options that we'll work through, but essentially Ontura was born from that. So it was determined that it was better to run as an independent company from the parent company. And so Ontura stepped out into an independent company. But um, yeah, so that was the genesis of it. And the decision that we made with Ian was that his experience was as a a physician, as a, a doctor who was in an integrative medicine space, whole of health, and actually formulation development, the clinical trial element, the education element, and that doctor-patient interface. And so we decided that we would partner backwards and actually purchase or source our materials from other partners who were doing the growing and cultivation, and we would concentrate on the end that we were very good at. And so that's mm-hmm. on tour, and that's, we had, um, we essentially had our product, it was a very long wait to get our first products on the market. We were out there educating from um, September of 2000 17 and we didn't get our first product into Australia until August of 2018. We've uh, we familiar we, we've heard about these long wait times. Yeah, 
Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah absolutely. And I, there's so many questions I want to ask you about that, but I do want to quickly cover just a little bit. So there is a bit of a story in your own personal experience within that sector, sector yeah. or within the plant medicine world, should I say. Um, very interested in hearing a little bit about that before we get to the more businessy side. I'd love to hear a little bit more of the human side that we sometimes yeah. um, get caught up in. Yeah, look, it is an interesting one. So that's one of the things I suppose part of the story comes back to. People were very surprised that I went into that complementary medicine space after being in human injectables. It was almost like going to the dark side. But as I've said, I've always had a bit of a belief in what I, yeah. um, I, I affectionately say the woohoo. Um, and, but I mean more than that. I've actually always had a strong belief in plant-based medicines, in the natural therapies, in yoga and different elements of that. Um, and one of my journeys is that I've um, had spent a lot of time and it's a family trait of not doing very well at sleeping. So <laughs> sleeping hasn't been my best thing. Um, and it's, it's a funny other side story, but it's one of the things that got me into watching Formula One. So I'm a bit of a Formula One addict um, and that is due to insomnia. <laughs> <laughs> but one of the things is I'd never actually spent any time with an integrative doctor. And so um, at the end of 2018, I decided that I'd had enough and I really wanted to spend time and go to an, an integrative doctor. Um, it was an amazing experience and I've never had a first consult with a doctor that lasted an hour. And I'd written a four-page medical history and I thought that um, I'd given everything out. She pulled stuff out from me that I hadn't even remembered. But the long and short of it is that she was actually able to prescribe um, medicinal cannabis for me, so a CBD product, um, on Pura's CBD um, product, and that was for insomnia. And the really interesting part of that is that I've never tried a prescription um, med medication for insomnia, and I'm because I'm genuinely worried about the side effects. You hear about all this still knocks and all of those kind of side effects, and my element is I still need to function really well, so I can't afford, afford to have that brain fog the next morning as a consequence of getting good night's sleep. And the good thing, I suppose, because of my background, I didn't expect to go in there and for the CBD to knock me out and all of a sudden have an amazing night's sleep. But it, it genuinely worked. It worked well for me. And what it did, I suppose, is it just put my body into a state that actually was receptive to sleep. Mm. So it's an amazing thing. So I've been on um, CBD since, yeah, February of last year. Perfect timing just before the pandemic hit. <laughs> and the other kind of element of that um, story is I actually... So we went through, it's a really tough time in a small business being in Melbourne in the lockdowns, trying to transition through last year. It wasn't an easy, easy task at all, particularly when your business is facing doctors face to face and you're not allowed to. Mm. Um, and it was about later in the year, for some reason, I can't, there was a trigger, but I went off the CBD for a few weeks. And can I tell you, people started to irritate the hell out of me. <laughs> and I hadn't realised it, went back on the CBD and they, they stopped. So I think it was really fortuitous for me, just generally my disposition and lack of getting stressed across that really tough pandemic, um, running the business in the pandemic time, that I had actually been on the, the CBD. Yeah, it's yeah. So and we, two thumbs up from me on that. We hear that story a lot where uh, people are like, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure if I'm actually really experiencing the CBD. For people that don't have certain chronic illnesses, for example, yeah. that, um, that might have tried it, and they're like, I'm not sure if it does a lot. And then they really realise it when they stop. That's yeah. when they seem to, to have yeah, and also the know. point you raised, Claire. I think about just how because people have asked me, and I'm prescribed CBD as well, but people have said, you know, if I take it, is it going to for for sleep? How does it work? Does it does it zonk you out? You know, do you mm. really just get a brick wall? And I've sort of described that it's it's more, at least for me, um, anecdotally, and I infer from what you said that it, it's 
it sort of in it induces a state of calm so it enables you to be in a in a place where sleep would be a little bit easier but it's not exactly acting like a, a full-blown sedative like a still knocks or anything like that yeah. that's going to just knock you uh you know into space yeah and i suppose the hard part is i don't have that comparison to your still knocks or anything because i was so scared of taking them but yeah the interesting thing for me was that yeah I, so I did take it in the morning i did feel i was drowsy the little complication is the one of the other things that came through last year was i was diagnosed with severe sleep apnea so that was another consequence mm -hmm. um and I'm now on a CPAP machine and my world has changed a further step from there. Yeah. I did not, I did not know what a good night's sleep was until the middle of last year. Um, even, even with the, even with the CBD. So that's not, yeah, it wasn't knocking me out, but it was at least allowing me to rest and actually get into a state where and I suppose that is, it's like the whole thing about that people have to remember is that we've got our, endo, our own endo, endogenous endocannabinoid system. So you're not looking at putting, a drug in for your system to fight with, you're actually just looking to balance your own system. Yeah. So I think that's one of the other reasons you look at it too, is you're just helping your body get back into its own natural balance. And it's, I think the, yeah, definitely the, um, you know, the fact that you're not going to get a whole range of really heavy duty side effects. Um, yeah. Like waking up super groggy. I've never heard of anyone doing that. Um, but yeah, I'm curious actually hearing you say that you're getting a good night's sleep, how you're managing to watch all these Formula One events that are on in the middle of the night in Europe. And uh, I've got to admit, yeah. I, um, I think uh, I go the other way with Formula One. I've never understood it. And I think watching it actually sends me to sleep. No disrespect uh, to your interest. So, well, well, well funny, funny you say that because what got me into it was, um, and again, obviously this is, the, you think your, your brain kicks over. Sunday night was almost my worst night's sleep, obviously thinking about the work week. And back before digital TV and anything like that, the Formula One wasn't actually played live. It was actually played always about two or three o'clock in the morning. And that was when I was awake. So that was the only thing that was actually putting me um, was there. But there was a period when I knew my sleeping was getting better because I wasn't seeing the end of the race. Right. <laughs> um, and I can tell you that now that there's two things. Sometimes I don't see the end of the race. I fall asleep before it finishes. Um, and, but other times, depending on what time it is, I actually just shut, I do an actual media blockout for um, 24 hours make sure I don't find out what the race um, results are and then I watch it the next evening. But more importantly, more importantly, what are your thoughts on V8 supercars? Yeah, see, <laughs> totally, totally, totally ambivalent. It hasn't turned me into a total rev head. It's just, it's just Formula One. And isn't it, always, isn't it always the same result anyway? Lewis Hamilton wins every time? Yes, it has. It certainly has been mostly that, though it's a little bit different this year. Though being, like, being an Aussie, following Dan Ricciardo has been a bit tough this year. Yeah. Anyway. When you said F1, I thought you meant uh, female genetics. That's what they call them, F1, F2, F3s. Uh, uh, no, not, nothing anywhere near as um, scientific as that. <laughs> <laughs> but you are actually, it's a great segue here, you are actually educating doctors and talking about the science quite a lot yeah. in your field of work. And I'd love to hear a bit more about that and the function because we haven't had anybody... Um, really speaking about, you know, how, how do doctors get educated in the, in Australia? How do they find out about cannabis? Where do they go? How do they learn all yeah. that kind of thing? Patient advocacy, these types of things. Yeah, look, it's, it's been a really interesting journey. And as you said, look, I wasn't quite there at the start, but pretty close to the start of that process here in Australia. And one of the things we've always got to remember is this is an unapproved medicine. So there's no advertising of it. And your rules are that you actually really, you can't actually even approach doctors. You need the doctors to seek you out to actually get your, to actually be able to get the education from yourself. So it's an amazing, it's a really, it's a bit of a conundrum to say, okay, well, 
how do they know about you if you're not allowed to talk to talk to them about it? So, um, and then we've always talked about the um, education doctors in the same way you talk about the tech space. I know that sounds a little bit odd, but you've got but you've got your early adopters, and then you've got to go through that whole adoption curve. And that's one of the elements that you had, we had to work on start to start off with was um, was how do you get good quality education to doctors and a lot of sceptical doctors as well. And I I think I had a real naivety about myself when this first started because I thought, well, you're going to have your older doctors are going to be really conservative and they're not going to be interested. And of course, the newer doctors, they're going to be really open-minded and they're going to be really looking at what's my next best thing that I can give to my patients. And I'm using generalizations here, so please don't think this is all doctors in those categories. But I found exactly the opposite. It was actually the younger doctors who said, well, if this had been the case, why did they teach, not teach you that in med school? No, I've mm -hmm. been taught in med school. It hasn't been there. Whereas your doctors who've been practicing for 20 years or so, they'd had those experiences where they'd tried everything for their patients mm -hmm. and things weren't working. Their answer was, what have I got to lose? Because what I'm doing with my patients now is not working. I'm not improving their quality of life. And in some respects, I don't know whether the cure is better than the actual ailment type of thing. Mm -hmm. So um, that was one of the things is actually understanding the doctors. But um, so we do it via a lot of webinars. We also produce really high quality materials. And I'm really, really proud of what we've done with Ontura right from word go. Um, we worked with someone who you've had on your podcast and worked with Kylie O'Brien. Oh, yeah, she's uh, worked fantastic. with us to do very technically, scientifically based what we call condition overviews. So mm. for anxiety, PTSD, talked about the disease condition, looked into the science behind it. So what was there from animal studies? What was there from human studies? What did it say, the good and the bad? And then looked about dosing, et cetera, and full referencing. So that was a basis of us going out to doctors that we had for the, initially for the most prevalent conditions, a real scientific base behind what we were talking to them about. Um, and another element that was really interesting, um, back in, I think it was late 2017, um, Ian, myself, and our then head of quality at Nutrition Care um, actually visited John Skerritt up in, in Canberra. Um, alongside it was um, Bill Turner, who was the head of ODC at the time, and then um, Dr Greenaway, who he's, was his medical advisor. And the, the topic was to talk about patient access because Ian was quite furious about the level of patient access. And also about the way it's regulated here, that it's regulated as a full pharmaceutical product. Um, apart from the fact that Ian and John had a nice little, um, it's a plant medicine, it's a pharmaceutical, it's a plant medicine conversation for about three or four minutes. And they actually get along really well. So it was, um, then they said, look, yeah, we'll agree to disagree and move on. Um, one of the things that came out was about how to, access, how to get better access. And um, what they then explained to us is something I didn't know about at that time, which was called an authorised prescriber process. And that is where someone who is actually um, who is, is who is actually experiencing a particular medicine. So it's not a specific medicinal cannabis. It's a set program or set up in Australia. If they're actually experiencing prescribing that unapproved medicine, they can apply to a human research and ethics committee to actually become an authorised prescriber, which allows them to nominate certain conditions, certain age groups, and certain products that they're authorised to prescribe without having to go to TJ every time. And that gives them that ability to write a script. They have to do six months reporting up to TGA, but it does take a layer of um, that bureaucracy out of things. And yeah. they basically said, we've got 27 urologists in New South Wales as APs at the moment, but if you, that's the way people can go. And they kind of challenged us to what to do. And they kind of said, we'll make that happen. And I don't think they thought we would. Well, Ian and I took that challenge on and went, well, how can we make this happen? 
And Ian's got a really strong connection with um, NIM, the National Institute of Integrating Medicine down here in Melbourne. And NIM actually have a HREC, so they have a Human Research and Ethics Committee. So he went and approached them and said, well, how do you feel about setting up to be able to review and approve authorised prescriber applications? And again, Kylie O'Brien happened to be the, um, the head of education at the time. And she said, well, talk to me about this. So I talked Kylie through the process of what that meant and the actual regulatory element of it. And quite rightly, she said, well, we're not going to approve these people unless they've got the right education. So she then worked with NIM, um, ACNAM and NICAM to put together the first RACGP class one um, point, accredited points, a, a two day program, which included theoretical education, case study stuff, an amazing program at the time, which was called MCE. So that's a long way to say that one of the ways of getting good doctor education is independent bodies putting real, and they got together prescribers from overseas. So people who were actually experienced from Canada and from the US to come and talk about the prescribing. It got um, Australian doctors who were early adopters talking about case studies. And that is one of the best ways to do it is get doctors in a room, present experts to them, and I'll actually let them talk about stuff. So that's one of the best ways of doing it. And I'm really proud that we had something to do with that. And the fact of how many APs there are in Australia now. That is, yeah. so, and I, I don't want to, um, you know, kind of be too sycophantic in saying this, but I don't want to gloss over that as an achievement because just hearing from the community of you know, recreational users, people maybe getting black market CBD oil access is obviously just such a prevalent theme, which won't go away in Australia until more barriers come down. And that authorized prescriber pathway, which you played such an integral role in its, in its sort of formative yeah. stages has actually really improved, not just, um, yeah, the number of people that, that have probably come forward to get it. But I think it's because word gets out that, okay, we actually have a few doctors in the community who are specialists. They're, you know, yeah. understood by the TGA to be authorized prescribers. So they know um, a thing or two about um, prescribing cannabis medicine. And the benefit is if you go and see that doctor, they can do the script um, and you can get that filled straight away. You don't need to sit there and wait as a patient yeah. while you're, you know, special access scheme on a case by case basis is, is determined and approved or rejected by the TGA. Yeah. And on that point, yeah. I think you played a role, didn't you, in sort of some guidelines around, because one of the things for listeners out there who are maybe going and seeing their local GP who isn't an authorized prescriber, that person has to, under the regulations, apply to the TGA for you to have medicinal cannabis and as part of that application they need to provide the TGA with a clinical justification yeah and that's in your wheelhouse Claire what did you do in the clinical justification space yeah so so on that so it's, it's a really interesting one because it's one of those ones where now I can get given some symptoms and stuff from a from a from a doctor and I could I could write up your clinical justification and sometimes I feel oh my god am I stepping over into a medical field but when you learn learn as much as you do and have the conversation you do learn a lot about it but and that was part of, I suppose, the process because the first GP in Australia to get an AP approved, I actually worked with her on her application. So that was a really lengthy task, the research to do it, all that. And it took a long time to get that approved. So, but I'm really, I'm really proud. Um, she's a really great doctor and I was really pleased to be able to work with her, but it was a process um, and TJ had a lot of questions. But through that, I, and I suppose it's also through my background is from being in the quality department and leading a quality team I have had to face um, TGA, FDA, 
auditors all the time, writing dossiers, writing audit reports. Um, I still think even um, however many years out, six or seven years out of CSL, I'm still probably have hosted more TGA audits than anyone in the country. Um, that's not necessarily a good thing, but I went, I was in charge of quality through a relatively interesting time when the, um, the vaccine had actually caused adverse reactions in children. So it was a really tough time. And we were actually audited by TGA once a month at that point in time. So yeah, the anti-vaxxers writing all about CSLs. Oh, look, it was actually not the anti-vaxxers. I hate to say it, it was actually a particular journalist at the Australian that I got up my nose a little bit. But anyway, let's move on from that. Yeah. Um, it, it taught me not to believe everything you read. No, um, yeah, we, yeah. It's almost yeah. like you can't trust, you know, the mainstream, um, you know, the Herald Sun, the Age, the Murdoch media. Interesting. But yeah, look, from that process, what it has done is I've got a long experience in actually understanding what the TGA is looking for, whether it's from a regulatory perspective or from this clinical perspective in writing your clinical justification, because what you're having to do. And so, yeah, so I actually, I run one of the webinars I run myself is actually how to write that clinical justification. So setting out some of your guidelines, really talking to doctors about, the importance of it and it's it's quite interesting because it's about a um it's about a 35 40 minute webinar i run and i go oh my god do people think and i go through in a really step-by-step -step process and i think oh do people think this is going to be so long but once a doctor gets into the flow of it and they know what they're doing it can take you five minutes because mm -hmm. it's really just a summary of your clinical notes but it's yeah. how you put those together to give tj the assurance that you know what you're doing yeah. One of the yeah, things that absolutely. keeps getting talked about, sorry to jump in, Mitch, is just that you, I know you've brought up previously on the show, actually, this is um, a topic of your interest, but the first line therapy, this point around, if you want to get medicinal cannabis, let's say um, as a patient for treating anxiety, um, you know, sleep disorder, something like that. Um, so I've just got a guest uh, dropping in here in the background. Um, if you've got, uh, you know, someone coming in for that, they need to have failed at a first line therapy that's more of a, um, a quote unquote conventional medicine. Maybe for example, like an SSRI in the case of anxiety or depression, that's a registered um, and approved medicine. What, um, what can you say about that? Look, so it can't be a first line treatment. That's correct. But most people think that that means that it has to be, um, that they have to have tried all other treatments. That's definitely not the case. Look, and I will say there is an exception with that. With children with epilepsy, there is a relatively um, defined process and certain numbers of different medications that they have expectations of children with epilepsy that they have tried. But if you put that aside, the answer is the doctor, this is a risk-based approach. And if you as a doctor can explain the reason why you want to try this with a patient, and I said, my, I'm the classic example. I had tried um, complementary medicines. I'd tried sleep therapy. I tried a few of those type of things, but I had never tried any, any actually pharmaceutically prescribed sleep medications. But because my history of what I had tried, because of my choice as a, um, as, as a patient, that I really, I had reasons why those medications were not going to be suitable for me. The story, not story, but the actual, the facts of what was done was presented. And that doctor was an experienced cannabis clinician. There's no question about that. She presented that in the clinical justification and was able to get me approved. Yeah, I've heard Sorry. this. I've heard that, that even, for, for example, in, to do with people suffering from chronic pain, for example, um, you might find situations where they've not really tried any first-line therapies, maybe Panadol, say, yeah. but then they have, a, a, say, an addiction profile 
So they don't want to try, you know, codeine or, or any opiates in, in that in that form. So they're actually allowed access just based on that kind of justification. I guess you could say that paracetamol is a first-line therapy. Well, well but it is. Paracetamol is a first-line ther- therapy. Yeah. So that's it. And again, I don't mean that anyone who's tried paracetamol is going to get approved for medicinal cannabis. It's mm. not that simple. Yeah. But but it isn't as difficult as people think. And it's very real. Like you talk about opioids. Um, I'm actually talking at the Addiction Australia conference next week and just presenting an overview of um, medicinal cannabis. And we've put together a flyer on this. But um, with opioids, it's actually... Um, it's, it's counterintuitive to use opioids for chronic pain because the more opioids are used, the more your body gets used to them and you're actually, you need more of them. So you're never actually, the opioids on a long-term basis are never actually going to be effective for chronic pain. They're very great in an acute setting, but they're not the right answer. And I think um, listening to your podcast with Stephen Chalk, he really explained well about why cannabis is a great solution for pain. Yeah. Because, I mean, in his, I think it was, I don't want to, take his words directly out of his mouth, but he, like his inference was most of the current treatments just aren't effective long-term. Yeah. Yeah, totally. It's uh, it, we do. Yeah. That's one of the main major reasons we see a lot of people coming across to cannabis is because they've been dealing with, you know, lots of side effects. It's like almost choose your medicine based on which side effects you like the least in a lot of, you know, more serious medication settings. And, and, and then, you, you know, you need to balance, you might have, you know, muscle spasticity. So you might have pain, you might have decreased sleep. So you now need to have, and you might have anxiety around that. So you're taking one medication for each of these indications. And all of a sudden you've got one medication in medicinal cannabis that can attack almost these three pronged or multiple areas at the same time. And uh, that's why we're seeing an influx and we see the demand, you know, outstripping supply. And look, and that's a story we get back all the time. And so one of the things is we get a lot of really positive patient stories back. And I can tell you, I still get goosebumps when I hear them. So that's mm. how much I love what we do. Yeah. But, and I think it comes back down to that. Look, there's a massive polypharmacy because of, and again, I come out of, as I said, I come out of CSL, big pharma as such. So I'm very much got a belief in, in pharmaceutical medicines in their place. But I also believe that we've got a little bit blinkered in our thinking about that, that it's a one-to-one relationship here's my problem, here's my drug, let's treat. And what I love about cannabis is it's actually looking at the whole, the whole of the body. You're actually looking at trying to balance your own system again. You're looking at complementing what your body naturally wants to do to um, potentially improve your endocannabinoid tone, those type of elements. So, And one of the things that we're actually noticing too, and this is one of the things with, um, I talk about when I talk about doctors, about setting expectations with patients is that you really have to think about this as a quality of life treatment, not necessarily a treatment for the condition you've been approved for. Because you might only get your pain scores down from a nine to a six. So you've still got residual pain. But as you said, Mitch, you're not as anxious about it. You're actually not, you're not worried. Am I going to get to sleep tonight because my pain is going to be too heavy? Are you worried that you're going to zone out in a meeting because the opioids you've got are going to make you a little bit spacey? You act, people end up saying, yeah, my pain scores are only a six, but gee, I'm interacting with this. I'm talking to my son or daughter more. I'm actually, I don't care about going out. We had a patient, um, she happens to be down in Warrnambool, that she started going out for lunch again, which presented a new problem for her because she hated, she, she was taking it three times a day. She was taking a lunchtime dose. She hated taking her oil out with her. Um, she tried right. to not have a middle of the day dose um, and she couldn't get by with it. So but that's where we had a tablet and she actually now just substitutes her tablet when she goes out for lunch and that works well for her. But mm. it was just amazing that she found another problem was getting out and about. It was, um, but that was amazing to hear that 
she she hadn't been visiting with her friends for about three years. Yeah, wow. Wow. And, she, and she, she, she doesn't have zero pain. There's no, no question. She still lives with pain, but is definitely manageable and her quality of life is incredibly different. Yeah, Q, QOL monitoring, I believe they call it. Is that, if I'm not <laughs> mistaken? Um, another really interesting area that we need to ask you about is personnel, staffing, cannabis. Yeah. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that first. And I'd also love to hear a little bit about you know, maybe there's people listening or watching that are interested in getting into the field. What are the types of things, you know, I'm, you know, everybody comes up and they joke, oh, you're in, you're in, you're a drug dealer, you know, yeah. you're in, and then they're like, by the way, like, can I get a job? Like trimming weed, you know what I mean? Like, blah, blah, blah. You've yeah. heard them all. But, but in, in all seriousness, what are cannabis companies looking for if they're looking to hire? Is it more on the farm side? Is it more on the on the pharmaceutical side, very curious to get your yeah. perspective on this. Look, um, so yeah, look, and this is something, and I can only speak about what I look for for us and for Ontura, because sure. I'm very big. We talk about living our values all the time, and so different yeah. companies would have different values to that. And on the hiring front, shout out, I am actually looking for an MSL in um, Sydney. So anyone in New <laughs> South Wales looking for a job, don't hesitate to talk to me. Um, but it's been really interesting. I'm a, one of the things that I um, have learned through the people I've worked with in my career is, is that you need to surround yourself with the people who do things better than you do. So if you've got some weaknesses, make sure you put in your team around you. That's everyone for me. <laughs> well, <laughs> you get a great big team there, Mitch. But no, in all honesty, put the people in your team who, who don't do things as well as you because that means you're going to have a really good balance. But when it comes back down to, um, I know a lot of cannabis companies talk about patient first, but we really truly live and breathe that mantra. And I am really thankful that Ian, as Ian Brighthope as a founder gives me the scope to do that. And I think that's the answer. Um, that mm -hmm. first AP application that I put a lot of time and effort into that, that was not for an Ontura product. There was not a single Ontura product in there. Mm -hmm. So we were helping doctors prescribe other products and we live and breathe by that. So that's a fundamental element for us is that when I'm looking to recruit, I'm looking to recruit someone who's actually going to, willing to come on board with me about the reason they're in there. So one of the questions I ask in that is, why have you applied for this job? And if they tell me they're just trying to get a promotion, they, they are, this, one person told me, oh, cannabis is the new next best thing. Sorry, as far as I'm concerned, that's not the right motivation to be there. Yeah. The answer is you actually have to understand what we're doing because both of you gentlemen know this is not an easy industry to be in. There is a lot of red tape. There's a lot of bureaucracy. As, as rewarding as it is, I think there's just as many frustrations. The things, it seems to be, and I was having a couple of conversations with two different other companies this week, that every time you turn around and you think you've got something sorted, some new unique problem comes up. So you have to be tenacious and you actually have to be really flexible. So if you're not in it for the right reasons in the first place, which mm. is the patient, I don't, look, I don't think, you're not going to work out in Montura. It's, That's it's one of the things I'll, I'll tell you. It's funny because uh, those those who know me uh, come from a bit of a, a let's say plant background um, yeah. within my family, and we actually put patients second. The first thing we, we put at the front is plants. Plants are first. That's a very good point. And, yeah. and patients are second. <laughs> yeah, I get that. Um, but and I suppose for us from a hiring perspective, then what I look for is because so I've got a really strong quality background. I've got a really strong science background, the business background, but I'm not a pharmacist and I'm not a doctor. Sure. So one of the things that I actually had, so my first. Um, good disclaimer um, there. Good dis little yeah, disclaimer. Yeah, there. Good, good disclaimer. <laughs> Sometimes I have conversations. I went, well, does people think I've got more qualifications than I have? Um, but so the first thing is the first person I had on the road was actually a, a pharmacist. And 
So that was firstly, credibility with the doctors. The doctors there knew they were talking to someone who actually understood medications and medicine. Sure. Um, and understood, and they could have really serious conversations about um, drug-to-drug interactions and, uh, and the pharmacology. Um, and then for me, and then when that person happened to get a job over, um, their husband got a job over in England and left me, I knew I wanted to replace them with the pharmacist. So of my team on the road, I've currently got two pharmacists and I will always make sure that I've got at least one pharmacist out in that space. Yep. And that also means that um, the other people in the road, if they've got any of those pharmacy type of questions, they've got someone just in their hand, just ask that question for, we work really collaboratively. The rest of the team on the road have then got different backgrounds from pharmaceutical, repping to nursing, to other different bits and pieces. But for me, it is that attitude, but it's that, it's that element. And the other thing that I really want people to think about is, I don't, look, if you, I, people who come from that typical pharmaceutical sales background are very used to their script of what they do. They've got their product portfolio. They know their patients. They know the target doctors, et cetera. And they get very good at talking about that. You need to be able to talk about, I suppose I, I put it put it that I do payroll, like I might be doing payroll or actually doing some entering customer orders one day. Then the next day I might be, as I was at one point in time, sitting next to Scott Morrison having lunch. Um, and it's not always that big of diversity, but do you payroll. do need to have what was that one? <laughs> I think I'd rather do payroll to be honest. <laughs> uh, yes, it was a little while ago, but it was it was an interesting one, um, an okay. interesting conversation. It was before the last election that was, but anyway. Okay. No. Um, yeah, but I suppose one of the things in this industry, I, and again, that's that you have to want to be here because I think you ultimately end up doing a lot more diverse things than you ever would do For in sure. another place. Like the, my my people on the road, they've actually they've helped us with technical content. They're delivering webinars, and that's stuff that you might not do if you're in a bigger company or if you're in a, in a different industry. So I think, but some of the challenges then is actually finding the people to fit that mindset because you're getting people who want to do it because the next buzz thing, or often what you're getting is people who've got a massive experience um, and in relatively, in the pharmaceutical industry, we know that they pay really, really well at times. So sometimes it's a bit of a challenge because we are a startup industry and I, a few years down the track, but I still think, we expect we display the um, attributes to the startup industry still. Um, that sometimes the, that even the bigger players we can't pay what a pharmaceutical company would pay you. Mm. So there's sometimes that gap you have to manage as well. And uh, curiosity. Any, oh, sorry, I got no, one go on, question mate. about the uh, how everyone at cannabis companies has to wear many hats. Have you had to do any um, appointments at uh, at Customs House, getting import permits endorsed, or anything like that? No, haven't had haven't had the um, haven't been down at Customs House yet, but um, have been doing very interesting things. And I certainly have. I've gone out and done the doctor's appointments, so I've actually mm-hmm. done my 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 stint on the road MSLing. Um, <laughs> my my team laugh at me when at that. They think I talk well and talk a good game. Um, <laughs> but, um, I just, but I suppose with the doctors, I'm like I am with you. I just um, impart what I know, um, tell them what I don't, and. Yeah, but no, 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 I haven't had to go down for that front. But there, I've, I have um, wished I could have at times. I really wanted to get myself. If I had have been in Germany, there's one, there was one point in time I would have been knocking on the German authorities' doors, and I would have, I would have actually quite literally sat at their door <laughs> until someone spoke to me. So. <laughs> I've got a quick question around um, people wanting to get into the industry. You've spoken about, yeah. um, you know, people with medical backgrounds, um, people that have. Um, kind of the tenacity of putting, putting or, or the integrity, putting patients first, for example. What about people who 
quote unquote have a passion or come from the existing maybe underground network of cannabis in uh, Australia already. If, if you find somebody who's been, for lack of a better term, living and breathing it for a while, yeah, um, in maybe ways that were you know not living, so living and, uh, living and inhaling it or vaping it, perhaps. So yeah, you're saying, you're saying they're in that little gray space. Correct. Yeah. It's not even gray, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Trying, trying to be polite here. Oh, look, I look, I, I, I'm, I'm a non-discriminatory person. I, look, I'm, I'm not going to frown again. Uh, certainly, um, I, I now, as I said, I run a medicinal cannabis company. My, my father's a truck, like a, was a truck driver by trade. I've learned never to judge a book by its cover. And growing up, he was still one of the most intelligent people I'd ever known. And he only went to school to, to year eight. So my answer is, you're, you're. I'm more worried about your. I'm more concerned about your character and your work ethic in what you display as opposed to where your background comes from. Yep. How can you fault someone for passionately believing in something? It might be illegal and it's, we're not talking about they're passionately believing in cooking ice, which harms others. They've been passionately believing in a, um, in a product to actually, um, to, to actually help people or help themselves, et cetera. So obviously the one thing is they have to be squeaky clean from the law perspective now or else I can't employ them. Yeah. Um, but from the perspective of their background, if they've got knowledge that can come to us and help us, I'd be silly not to consider it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, that's very interesting for all those listeners out there that might have different, different uh, past history. But, yeah, so the, <laughs> the, 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 probably the counter side to that is that, um, A, we're not in the growing space. And the other thing is they're probably going to get a little bit bored by our industry, going back to what you said, Andrew, that SOP space. Yeah. We are very structured yeah. in the way we have to work. So I know a lot of people are stunned by that. So you'd be surprised though. I remember I was working on a, on a farm in um, deep Northwest America for about a year. And let's just say that not every person in that town of 800 people was educated or had been to university or even finished high school. Or was, you know, taste. Yeah, didn't, yeah, didn't know yeah. didn't know a lot about the outside world. I'm not here to judge, but I'm like they just had a very narrow experience mm -hmm. um, to that point. Um, however, when we got to the topic of cannabis, they became MSLs, like they uh, they <laughs> became biochemical engineers. They actually knew the the uh, how the ratios, the 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 point at which um, the THCA molecule decarboxylates, how to make resin, how to distill it, and I was just like, what what am I actually listening to? You don't actually know that you think the Middle East is next to the Pacific Northwest, but you actually don't know that, <laughs> but you know, all yeah. this specialist information about purifying um, cannabis into, you know, into all different forms and um, extracts. And I was just blown away by how much that passion can take somebody who otherwise doesn't know as much and give them some kind of superlative knowledge on, on it. A, on it works for you. Definitely. Yeah, so that's all I know about yeah. cannabis and podcasts. Yeah. But, I, but I think that's, that's the beauty of it. And I think that's anything to do with life. And I think that's one of the things, and I go, I'm getting a bit philosophical here, that the pandemic has possibly taught us is that we have to do things that make us happy. Mm. Um, and if you're doing things that make you happy, you do, yeah. look, this is what's happened with me. I, I call it getting down, stuck down the, the rabbit hole. I, I, get, I read a clinical paper and then I go, oh, but where did they get that part from? And then I actually click on the next reference to the next one. And it's because it genuinely interests me. And whether that's cannabis mm. or whether it's anything in your, if you find something that you touch on, it makes you happy, you're ultimately going to become the expert just because you can't get enough of it. Yeah. So, 
And it's I either that or um, late late night cat videos on YouTube. Late, so, yeah, yeah. I've noticed everyone's become an expert as well. Like in the early days of the um, the pandemic, it was you know getting briefings from government. Now you could be getting a coffee at the you know the shop, chatting to the barista, and they're saying, "Yeah, a little bit concerned about the contact tracing efforts that we're seeing in some of the hotspots." I know I noticed there's quite a considerable degree of vaccine hesitancy in the community. That can obviously be overcome <laughs> if we roll out at a faster rate than we currently are. Um, so, as you say, Mitch, it's acquired knowledge driven by um, passion or perhaps necessity in the case of, yeah. uh, of COVID. Um, yeah. Nothing else to talk about in the case yeah. of COVID. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Um, well, I, I didn't have any further questions, but I, I'm sure I'll think of a few after we jump off this. Did you have any more, Mitch? Well, just our obligatory final comment, I think, or final question that we usually ask on this podcast. You may have seen it before, Claire, but... Legalization, recreational. What do you think? And how and far will, away? Yeah, will and on will it happen? Will Ontura have a um, a line of joints that they make available, or <laughs> what's the what's the product planning in the recreational space looking like for you guys? But more so the time. Yeah, so, so I, I can answer both questions, and I have no hesitancy in answering. <laughs> both questions, um, so it's a really interesting one. I I have to say I I have miserably failed in my first ever prediction in this space. I predicted by now that we would actually have um, uh, can it CBD in pharmacy and I thought we'd have it by the end of last year. Um, and I was even hopeful that might have been even a step down from Schedule 3. So my first prediction totally failed. So don't put any money on what I say. Done. Um, but we have actually, interestingly, had this conversation quite extensively. And I think, um, I used to think five to ten years. I'm actually probably closer to the five years now. I actually have revised myself down a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think that is due to the patient population and push within Australia. I think this is a topic that, um, that is very patient pushed. And I think there's going to be a point where there is possibly going to be some change. The counter side to that is that I suppose my background with the regulators and understanding them and understanding their risk profiles, et cetera, et cetera. I think they're going to find it hard on the actual to down schedule or to get it stepped through down on that actual medicinal space. So I think things like what the ACT's done is probably where the movement's going to come through rather than any other kind of space. So therefore yeah, I think that that's why I, I scale it down a little bit, but yeah, don't, don't place money on my bed. <laughs> THC as well. THC, you reckon five years? Well, it is an you know ACT. Yeah, I, th I, th I think so. Cause I don't think if you're going into that adult use market or the recreational market, whatever you call it, I don't think they can discriminate. I don't think, cause you're going to talk about, you're going to be at the stage of growing plants and you're going to be at like personal use growth of plants and things mm. like that. Or you're more, you're more traditional, um, the, the, like this type of shocks you get over in the US. And I don't think they're going to be able to keep THC out of it. Yeah. Um, I still think in one of the topics that I know you've had lots of conversations, driving is still a very big sticking point and we're very conservative on that front here in Australia. I think that more than anything might hold things up, but I don't know. Good point. Yeah, I think um, yeah, I think you're exactly right that that ACT model could be potentially the way that it it all falls. It's um, it's interesting. We chatted with uh, with your mate Kylie O'Brien yeah. about um, the prospect of actually just getting um, medicinal cannabis taken off the uh, the schedules, full stop, in that sort of complementary medicine style. Yeah. Um, you know, but I know there's a lot of companies out there that are obviously um, have invested quite a bit in clinical trials and, and wanting to, to sort of be first to market with an S3 and all that. Um, yeah, personally, 
I think that uh, I think all of that's overkill, but um, I'd, I'd really like to see it taken off the uh, the schedules, but um, or at least anything non psychoactive. But um, you know, we can yeah, only- look, and, and I'm very much so. I wrote a white paper on how it could actually be regulated somewhere between the complementary medicine space and pharmaceutical space back in 2017. And with my knowledge of the regulations, I believe it can be, and I believe a CBD product can be. Um, and look, I'm a really big supporter of the TGA. I just think in some respects they got caught up um, without, without being able to see the woods of the trees a little bit on that. And I certainly, I've worked closely with Kylie on that down scheduling and yeah, I'm big, look, I, and the descheduling element and that, pro, that um, the proposal that she'd put in. So that's on that front. Then to answer your other question, Andrew, the answer is the world is our oyster. We could do anything. And um, <laughs> that's what I, I wanted to hear. <laughs> I can look, look, I can tell you from the moment we, we've got long-term plans and our strategic plan for Ontura absolutely posed the question and considered the recreational space. Excellent. The answer is we are first and foremost about the patient, about healthcare. It's, it, you may laugh about this, but Ian and I talk about world peace and that is actually features on our business plan in the top corner is a little bit of a world peace symbol. Um, and that is because he's a firm believer if you can actually get the nutritional balance right in people, that they are generally happier and you'll actually have a more peaceful world. So Sweet. if we are doing it in a responsible manner, um, again, one of the reasons I love the complementary medicine space here in Australia is because it is regulated in a way that's not regulated in anywhere else in the world. Um, so if you can give a safe, effective, constant product to people that is actually going to do them good and not harm, and if Ontura can be part of that, we will but we are primarily here under the, um, the, the pharmaceutical model, the medicine model at the moment. But if there is a responsible way that we can actually step through that as it um, changes, what, if, if, you can't, if you can't evolve with the business, you're going to get left behind. It's a very responsible statement. I like how it was structured. <laughs> I have been asked this before. I've thought about I it. I might so. have noticed that. Yeah, it's very good. Um, <laughs> fantastic. Well, I think that possibly brings, I, I could talk for another three hours, but um, but um, we might just have to get you back on for another episode in, in future months. Yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love to because there's a whole heap of other different bits and pieces that um, I'd love to talk to you about, a little bit about DVA funding and a whole heap of different bits and pieces. But um, Ooh, it's been wonderful talking tonight and more than happy to come back whenever you'd like. Oh, thank thanks, you. Claire. We've pleasure to have you. Yeah, it's, it's been great. And just quick shout out to, um, to my mum. Uh, really appreciate the unintended cameo. Um, so I think she's the first uninvited guest that's uh, that's made her way onto the uh, the podcast oh we had we had steve ng's dog that dug a, a dug a oh, hole into right. his couch yeah in that's the week true. In, that's true. so that's what happens andrew when you when you escape melbourne to get out of the <laughs> lockdown i got out of the ring of steel and i thought i was in the clear but uh, now i've got mum interrupting my podcast <laughs> down here on the great ocean that's Island. so 2021 mum interrupted my podcast that's the most that's lockdown great. statement i think i've ever heard I'll, I'll have that as my um, my update on uh, on Facebook and Twitter for the next 24 hours. Um, so thank you so much, Claire. It, it has been thank you. our pleasure. And yeah, really want to unpack DVA funding and a few other topics. We could talk driving. Um, yeah, there, there's quite a bit. So we'll uh, we'll save it all up for next time. But thank you so much. And uh, yeah, take care and best wishes with everything, all the great work you're doing in Ventura. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. And yeah, um, and the other thing I want to say is I'm really pleased to be on here because I love listening to your podcast. So keep up the good work. Thank you. We'll uh, hopefully get a few more likes with uh, with this episode. We'll um, yeah. Until until next time, we'll speak soon. Thank you so much, guys. Bye.